0: Hello everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. Today we're going to be finishing what we started yesterday on the scriptural basis for the Marian teachings. Uh, again, before we get into the meat of the video, I do want to say that if you have not yet become a patron, please consider becoming one. Each tier contains premium content, and you can subscribe at five, ten, or 20 dollar tiers. But you can also uh, subscribe with a custom amount per month. Okay, so with that said, uh, let's get into the video. The next Marian teaching that I want to discuss is the idea that Mary is the Queen of God's Kingdom. Now sometimes this is articulated as Queen of Heaven, but I think it's a better formulation to describe her as Queen of the Kingdom of her Son, because Christ is the King of Heaven and the Earth. We hold that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Queen of her Son's Kingdom queen of the creation. In the Old Testament, the queens of the kings of the kingdom of David were the king's mothers, though the bride is also spoken of in royal terms. This is actually something which never passed out of use. For example, if there is a uh, king or a queen in Great Britain, and they have a living mother, the living mother is also known as the queen mother, even as the king's bride is called queen Almost every king in the Book of Kings is introduced with his Gebirah, or his queen mother. In the introduction to Kings, we see Bathsheba entering the throne room of King Solomon. King Solomon stands, reverences his mother, and prepares a throne for her at his right hand, suggesting a formal political role in the political system of ancient Israel. Jesus is the ultimate king on the throne of David, and it therefore makes perfect sense that Mary is the queen mother with an analogous role in his kingdom. Yet the scriptures are even more explicit than this. In Mary's Magnificat, in the Gospel of Luke, she states that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of lowly estate in their place. At the very beginning of the Magnificat, Mary refers to herself as of lowly estate. The implication is that Mary it has been elevated and enthroned. But it gets even more specific than this. Mary states that all generations shall call me blessed. This is a double allusion to two texts, Psalm 45 verse 17 and the Song of Songs 6 verse 9. Psalm forty-five seventeen states that God will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. The immediate context is the exaltation of David's queen and this promise of blessing seems to be addressed to both king and queen, exalted and glorified together. In making an allusion to this phrase, Mary identifies herself as the queen of her son's kingdom. Luke has just told us that God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. In Song of Songs 6.9, Solomon's Egyptian bride is led in a procession towards Solomon in Jerusalem, and the text informs us that the entourage calls her blessed. Solomon built his bride her own palace. She was the queen of his kingdom. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin Mary specifically makes reference to two texts of the Old Testament, both referring to the Queen of the kingdom and applying them to herself. Next, the Assumption of Mary. We celebrate this in Orthodoxy as the Dormition of Mary. This is where uh, the Blessed Virgin fell asleep and then was resurrected and assumed into heaven. Now, this Marian teaching is the one with the least explicit scriptural support, but one might suggest a basis for it in Revelation 11-12. The book of Revelation as a whole is structured around the fact that in the New Covenant, men are exalted over the angels in heavenly council. They enter into the throne room of God. Twenty-four angelic elders appear in Revelation 4-5, to 5, each performs an action throughout the book, and then walk off stage until the throne room is empty in Revelation chapter 15. Now, we know that these are 24 angels, because if you count up the number of angels who act throughout the rest of the book, it is exactly 24. The saints are brought up and exalted with Christ in Revelation 20, during the millennium, or the church age. And the apocalypse says in Revelation 14, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, for they rest from their labors. The theme of this book is the gift of sabbatical rest to the people of God, including those old covenant saints under the altar in Revelation 6. Sabbatical rest is always associated in scripture with enthronement. Because Mary, and specifically in the Ohenian literature and Revelation 12, is a figure for the whole church, if there was one place her exaltation and enthronement to God's room the heaven of heavens would be found, it would be in Revelation. Thus, Revelation 11.19 declares that the heavens were opened when the kingdom came, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen. As described in yesterday's video, the first thing we hear following this is a woman who was seen in heaven. Weaving these threads together, it is possible to likely that, among other things, this is a reference to the bodily assumption of Mary, as the point of the Ark is exactly its physicality, as a sign of the union of God with the creation. The bodily assumption of Mary is a sign and a seal that the souls of the departed saints are exalted and enthroned around Christ, followed at the end of Revelation 20 by their bodily resurrection, as we believe that Mary first died before being resurrected and assumed. Finally, I wanted to discuss the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now the perpetual virginity of Mary, I think, actually is quite easy to prove, both from Scripture and from history. One thing that's interesting is that the family of Jesus continued to manage the Jerusalem church until Hadrian expelled all the Jews from Palestine after the Third Jewish War. Now, we actually have traditions from the Jerusalem church prior to Hadrian's expulsion of the Jews as preserved in quotations by other writers. And we know that these traditions explicitly identified those who were called the adolphoi of Jesus as cousins of Jesus. So I do take the view that these are cousins. Uh, There are two principal objections to the perpetual virginity of Mary. First, there is a citation of Jesus' brothers and sisters. Two, Two solutions to this problem are possible. First, it is possible that his brothers are stepbrothers, children of Joseph from a previous marriage because Joseph could be a widower. The other solution is the idea that these are not Jesus' literal brothers, but relatives or cousins, since the word Adelphoi can refer to cousin. I hold the latter to be more likely for this reason. Matthew's Gospel refers to James and Joseph, in that order, as two of the Adelphoi of Jesus. There is only one other time in Matthew's Gospel that James and Joseph are mentioned in the same order. That is in Matthew 27 where we find the women standing at the foot of the cross, one of whom is the other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. It is very unlikely that the Virgin Mary would be referred to as the other Mary, and if this was the Virgin Mary, it would make much more sense to identify her as the mother of the primary character, Jesus, not these two minor characters. If these are Jesus' cousins, then the other Mary must be a close relative of the Virgin Mary. And indeed, in John 19.25, one of the women at the foot of the cross is his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas. Such undesigned coincidences which explain each other are a hallmark of authenticity. The Virgin Mary therefore had a close relative named Mary, and, and this Mary is identified as the mother of James and Joseph, Joseph the same James and Joseph identified in Matthew as the Adolfo of Jesus. This strongly indicates that these were not children of the Virgin Mary. Why call them Adolfoie then, when there was another word for cousin? I believe it is likely or possible that they were raised in the same household as Jesus, because poor families would sometimes grow up together in the same household. As a household is the critical unit of the family in scripture, it would make sense for these individuals to be called the brothers of Jesus. Another possible interpretation would be to see references to the brothers of Jesus here as paradigmatic uh, for the extended family of Jesus that is the whole church and that's how Jesus' family is used in Luke and Acts. They are kind of a root from which the whole church grows as plant. The second objection to the perpetual virginity of Mary is that Matthew 25, 1.25 says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son ostensibly implying that she did have conjugal rela- that he did have conjugal relations with her afterwards. However, in Greek, as indeed in English, the word for until chaos need not imply a change in status until after the action is completed, though it sometimes does. The classic example is Matthew twenty eight twenty, where the Lord promises to be with his people always, even until the end of the age. Obviously Jesus does not abandon his people afterwards. Why emphasize the period up to her birth, then? I think Matthew does this in order to absolutely rule out the idea that the child had been conceived by Mary and Joseph, without an intent to refer to what happened or didn't happen afterwards. Now, can we find positive evidence for the perpetual virginity of Mary in the New Testament? I believe we can. Some sources, late 1st to the early 2nd centuries, state that the Virgin Mary had taken a ritual vow of virginity to serve at the Lord's Temple. Whereas some have argued in the past that such vows only belong to Gentile sanctuaries, not Israel's, this is simply incorrect. 1 Samuel 2, for example, refers to the great sin of Hophni and Phineas as sleeping with the women at the tabernacle. This sin is so great because it breaks their vow with God. The temple and tabernacle are described in feminine bridal terms, and the inviolability of the virgin women symbolizes the inviolability of the sanctuary and the city itself. Its borders cannot be transgressed. Another example is the daughter of Jephthah. The word translated, burnt offering, Allah, really means ascension offering. So when Jephthah offers his daughter as an ascension, it does not mean that he kills and burns her as a literal human sacrifice. Instead, it means that she, as the Gibeonites, who were described in sacrificial language since they were permanently consecrated to the service of the tabernacle, is sent upwards, as the tabernacle is on a hill and is always described as up relative to the surrounding area, as an ascension. Thus, she spent time beforehand lamenting her virginity. The women who served at the tabernacle were perpetual virgins. What is the evidence that Mary had taken such a vow? First, circumstantially... Joseph disappeared before the ministry of Jesus. This implies that he was quite old at the time of the marriage and died before the ministry of Jesus, which would make more sense if his role as husband were simply meant as a guardian and he did not intend to produce children. Second, much more clearly, the response of the Virgin Mary to the angel Gabriel simply makes no sense unless she had made such a vow. Gabriel tells Mary that she will have offspring. Imagine if she had intended to have conjugal relations with Joseph, as she was already betrothed. If she intended such, it would have been obvious how she would bear Jesus. The promised child would be born after the two are formally married and the marriage was consummated. But this is not how Mary responds. Instead, she says, translated literally, How shall this be, since I know not man? This literal translation is sharper than the typical, Since I am a virgin. The verb is active, and it indicates that this is an ongoing reality. There is something about Mary which entails that she has no conjugal relations with men in a continuing state, and that is why she must ask how she will have this child, even though she was already planning to be married to Joseph in the near future. In the Old Testament, there is indeed precedent for married woman taking a vow of virginity. Numbers 30 mentions how a wife, with the consent of her husband, can take a vow to the Lord to afflict herself, temporarily or permanently. This appears to be an ascetic vow which includes abstention from conjugal relations. This is likely because it matches all other instances where God comes in glory. At Sinai, for example, one was not to go near your spouse because God was about to come in glory. Vows of consecration to God entail virginity for as long as the consecration lasts, and such vows could be, uh, could be taken by married women. I also want to add that we can see this in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul mentions married couples who abstain from conjugal relations for a temporary period of time with mutual consent. He also then arguably mentions what we call white marriage, or a marriage which isn't intended to be consummated, but which is a kind of mutual partnership. The perpetual virginity of Mary actually makes sense of a host of curious details throughout scripture, and does not need to be forced on the text. I hope you've all found these videos helpful. It is my firm belief that the Mariology of the New Testament is not undeveloped. Rather, the Church through the ages, as it deepens its understanding of Scripture further and further, has come to see what was always really there from the Apostle's pen in the beginning. It is not as if the Scripture provides the premises for the Marian teaching, and the Church works out their logical implications. Rather, the scriptures, in their typical mode of allusion, symbolism, and typology, itself draws out the Marian implications of its theology.